Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 55, that'll be our sermon text for this morning. Uh, if you've been here for a few weeks, you know we're working our way through the Psalms. Uh, we're not hitting every Psalm, but we are uh, <coughs> hitting quite a few of them, about 23 of them in total. And uh, we'll, uh, we're looking at one Psalm week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Psalm 55, would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you because uh, apart from you, we cannot understand your word, we cannot believe your word, we cannot trust in your Son, uh, we cannot cling to the cross. Uh, Father, we come to you as needy people, uh, people who need your grace, people who need your spirit, uh, people who need you at work in our lives and hearts. And so, I pray, Father, that right now that you would be at work in me to give me the words to say as I uh, teach this text of Scripture, Uh, be at work in all of us as we hear. Uh, We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to receive and believe your word and especially to trust in your Son afresh. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 55. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mesquil of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan because of the noise of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. Selah. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. Destroy, O Lord. Divide their tongues. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst, oppression and fraud. Do not depart from its marketplace. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and He hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. My companions stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords." 
Cast your burden on the Lord, and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. The phrase, on your knees, is uh, an interesting phrase because it has multiple shades of meaning. It's often a command to a defeated enemy, as in, on your knees and hands behind your head. It might imply begging for something, as in, uh, don't make me get on my knees and beg. Or it may simply mean weakness, on the verge of collapse, on its last leg, about to give up. Uh, a number of websites gave the sample sentence uh, that the country's economy was on its knees. All of them imply, though, something similar, a position of having no power. Whether being captured or needy or just plain weak. Uh, counterintuitively, of course, when I talk about uh, being on your knees in a moment, I mean this is how we fight our battles. And this is how we win our wars on our knees. Uh, it does still have to do with weakness, of course, but it has to do with God's power made perfect in our weakness. This morning we're going to talk about prayer, uh, but especially prayer in the face of enemies and betrayal. And the, the key idea is that we fight our battles on our knees, or that we face our enemies on our knees. And our outline this morning, it's not on the back of your bulletin, uh, where it normally is, but I'll give it to you right now. Our outline this morning, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about five things. First, get on your knees. Second, uh, in the face of enemies. Third, don't run. Fourth, don't play God. But fifth, get on your knees and pray. So get on your knees in the face of enemies. Don't run, don't play God, but get on your knees and pray. So first, get on your knees. By get on your knees, of course, I mean prayer. The Psalms are prayers, after all. And one application of every song, psalm, just about, is to pray. Verse 1 begins, Give ear to my prayer, O God. And I want us to notice a few brief things about this psalm uh, before we dive into the content. A few things about its structure and its timing, uh, its manner, and its requests. First, the structure. This prayer is messy. It's important to observe, though, because uh, David moves back and forth between his restlessness and fear to the noise of the enemy, to his desire to run, to his request for vengeance, back to the enemy, back to justice, back to his prayer and God's grace. Uh, there's no simple structure to this prayer. And why is that important? Well, because isn't that how your prayers are? Messy? We don't come to God with an outline. We come to God with our hearts. Especially when our hearts are afraid, we move back and forth between the object of our fear, between the fear itself, and between reminding ourselves of who our God is. And so don't feel like you have to script your prayers, right? We come messy. Come with your heart. Second, notice the timing. Uh, verse 17 in this 
psalm says, evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. The psalmists often talk about the timing of their prayers, actually. Psalm 5 says, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. Uh, Psalm 119 says, seven times a day I praise you. And the point, if nothing else, is that the psalmist comes to God often throughout the day, morning, noon, and night, he is laying his prayers before his Father. This is what Paul elsewhere calls prayer without ceasing. That when life happens or emotions come, our hearts turn to God and lay our requests before Him. Uh, That takes practice, of course, as most things do, right? We have to train our hearts to turn to our Father. Uh, That, by the way, I think is is why it's helpful to set times for prayer. Not so that you only pray at those times, right? But so that you train yourself to turn to God throughout the day. Uh, I actually have alarms on my phone to remind me to pray. I need to have alarms to remind me to pray. It's true. Uh, But the net effect is I become less dependent on those alarms and more naturally turn to my Father when I'm in need because I'm praying throughout the day, cultivating a posture of prayer and readiness to turn to my Father at a moment's notice. Uh, third, let's, let's notice the manner of this prayer. David talks about his plea, his complaint, his moaning. David's heart is in anguish, verse 4. He is full of fear and trembling, verse 5. David is bringing his heart to God. He's not cleaning up his emotions and then coming to God. He comes real and raw and emotional, and we see that in so many other psalms as well. And so should we. Bring ourselves to God, bring our hearts to our Father, as messy as they are. A fourth, notice something uh, finally about David's overall request. David has really two requests in this psalm. He wants God to hear him, verse 1, and he wants God to act, verses 9 and 15 to 19. Uh, David comes seeking something from God. And that always fundamentally must be the case because we have nothing to offer him. We come to receive. We come seeking God's face, his grace, his mercy, his help. And so we come to God messy and often and raw and needy. We come that way because in all honesty, there's no other way to come. We are needy, so we come often, not hiding our mess, but real and honest and raw. Get on your knees. Second, in the face of your enemies. We do all have enemies. Whenever people disagree with me or get in my way, they can feel like enemies, but that's not quite what I mean. Uh, It's easy for us in 21st century America to think that we have no real enemies or to think of enemies simply in terms of politics or specific cultural issues, but it goes beyond that. Who are your enemies? There are people who know they have enemies. Uh, People who have been abused know they have enemies. Statistically speaking, right, it's likely that a number of people in this room have been abused by someone close to them, a family member or a friend. People who face random acts of violence, as we heard about uh, just a few moments ago, know they have enemies. Whether more personal acts of violence, like mugging or car theft, or more public acts of terrorism, like so many of the shootings of recent years. People who face opposition for their faith know they have enemies. 
whether subtle rejection or more outright persecution, as still takes place in many parts of the world. I think some Christians today are beginning to feel a little bit uncomfortable in our culture, uh, not simply because there is a side of culture that we don't like, but we've begun to realize that the whole trajectory seems to be off. What we don't realize is that the lies came in a long time ago, right, in the form of human autonomy and the unrestrained valuing of human choice. And we're just now seeing the fruit of that. We're beginning to realize that the city of God and the city of man are not as cozy as we once thought. And yet lies themselves can't be the enemy, right? Even these kinds of lies have a liar behind them. If nothing else, all Christians have a real, persistent, spiritual enemy, the devil. The liar, the tempter, the accuser, and the murderer of old. Sometimes, of course, I think I am my own worst enemy. And that certainly can be true. Uh, The sin in my heart, the corrupt desires of my own soul. And so whether the world, the devil, or the flesh, we have an enemy. Who are your enemies? David had enemies. Uh, This was true throughout his life, right? From Goliath to Saul to his own son who sought to steal his throne. We don't know which enemy provoked this psalm, but he uh, describes the enemies throughout. Verse 3 talks about the noise of the enemy and the oppression of the wicked. He says, they drop trouble upon me, and in anger they bear a grudge against me. Right? There, there was trouble, and it was personal for David. Verse 9 takes it further. It talks about violence and strife in the city. Verses 10 and 11 tell us it's not just personal, but it's also public. Right? Everywhere David looked, he sees sin day and night around the city walls, in its midst, never leaving its marketplace. And yet it's even worse than that because it's not just that there were troublemakers out there somewhere for David. It was not even just that they were out to get David himself. No, it was even more personal than that because this enemy was once David's friend. Verses 12 through 14 say this, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolent with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Right? How much worse is it when the one who taunts you was once your friend? When the one who abuses you was once your confidant? They took sweet counsel together. Right? He's saying, we went to church together. They sung in the choir together. They were in small group together. They were friends but now they're enemies. What happened? Well, verses 20 and 21 tell us. David says, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. See, verse 20 adds that that this person violated his covenant. They weren't just friends, right? They had entered into some kind of a formal agreement together. Unless David, perhaps, is simply saying they were so close it was like a covenant. And yet, either way, this language highlights the seriousness of this betrayal. There was some formal or informal commitment to one another. And yet, this man turned his back on David. Verse 21 adds that all his words were kind and encouraging. You made me promises, And then went back on your word. You betrayed my trust, he's saying. 
This enemy, this betrayer is a two-faced liar. You built me up and then stabbed me in the back. David felt betrayed. Someone was lying, spreading rumors perhaps, gossip, whatever it was. Their words were nice to his face and yet destructive to his back. And maybe your enemy, whoever that might be, does not threaten physical harm. There, there hasn't been abuse, no physical persecution, but there are words, there are rumors, there is gossip, and it's still betrayal. It's still broken confidence. It's still loss of trust. We all have enemies, whether that's betrayers or abusers, terrorists, or just plain gossip. And again, even if all this seems like a distant boogeyman, right? You're thinking, I don't have any enemies in life. There's nobody that's against me. Well, you do have an enemy, the evil one. The devil seeks to deceive God's people, to lead us astray, to undermine our faith, to lead us to sin, to lead us to guilt and self-loathing, to convince us that God is absent or doesn't love us or that he's not with us and that we ought to just give up. The evil one, Scripture says, is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour and even our battles with human enemies are really spiritual battles. Human opponents of the gospel in Scripture are called servants of Satan. Our real struggle in that battle is that we would maintain our faith and not give up, not despair, not give in to temptation and not wallow in guilt, but keep believing the gospel and looking to Jesus. Truly, our battle is not with flesh and blood. So get on your knees in the face of your enemies, and don't run. When, people are tempt when, when are people tempted to run in the face of enemies? Right? People have different personalities. Uh, uh, some of us run from conflict of any kind. We're afraid of the smallest quibble. Right? Other of us, others of us will die on every hill. Right? We're looking for a fight. When are you tempted to run? Uh, David was tempted to run. We see it in verses 4 through 8. David said, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. David wanted to flee. He wanted to hide in the wilderness to get away as fast as possible. Uh, by the way, there's some irony here because uh, cities were meant to be a place of protection. The wilderness was, well, wild and untamed and unsafe. But the wickedness of the wicked have reversed that situation for David. Now the city is a place of violence and the wilderness is a place of longed for refuge. So David wants to run. People who have been abused by family members know what this is like. Because our homes should be a place of refuge. But for some, they are places of terror. Which, of course, leads to the thought that sometimes we should run. Uh, sometimes we need to get out of a bad situation. In fact, just in case you're wondering, Jesus says as much in Matthew 24, verse 16, in light of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Sometimes Jesus says we should flee. In fact, sometimes Jesus fled, if you read the Gospels carefully, uh, on a few occasions when people tried to arrest or kill Jesus, we are told that he hid or that he escaped. See, we flee abusive situations or random acts of violence, right, whenever possible. By all means, get out of the way of immediate harm. So when shouldn't you run? 
Uh, well, when you can't, uh, that's when you don't at least, whether because you're physically unable or because God calls you to stand and fight. David was the king of Israel. David couldn't flee because David couldn't stop being king. He couldn't run to the desert because to run to the desert would mean forsaking his role as the ruler in Israel. He had a job to do. He couldn't simply get away. You can't flee if it's a matter of faithfulness in the moment when you're called to stand. Uh, sometimes people might tempt us to flee, right? Uh, as in Psalm 11, where Psalm 11, the psalmist is tempted to flee like a bird to the mountain again. Someone tells him to do that. And he tempts the psalmist, basically saying, the situation is hopeless, run away, the wicked are ready to pounce, there's nothing you can do about it. See, the temptation sometimes is to run because you think you can do no good. And that may be true. But, Psalm 11 continues, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. You don't need to run because the Lord is in his holy temple. Sometimes you can't run because you're physically unable. Sometimes you don't run because God calls you to stand and fight. But in either case, the Lord's throne is in heaven. Meaning, God, your God, reigns presently. And whatever trouble, however horrific, comes your way, you can trust him to see you through. And because he's sitting on the throne, right, you can trust him to punish your enemy and make things right. Which brings us to the next point. See, we're building this idea that we face our enemies on our knees. And we've talked about getting on our knees in the face of our enemies, not running. And then fourth, don't play God. If we're not tempted to flee, we're often tempted to fight. That may be getting into shouting matches or it may be getting into fist fights. Often we seek to solve our problems by fighting back. Now, let me say that Scripture does not condemn uh, self-defense. You know, the passage that we often use for that is the passage about uh, being slapped on the right cheek and then uh, giving someone the other cheek. But that passage about being slapped on the right cheek is not about being attacked, but about being insulted. Uh, the, the slapper in this case is not trying to do harm, but bring shame. That's the idea there. And so Jesus' point is not that self-defense is wrong, but that the exchange of insult for insult is, if someone insults you, let it go however bad that insult may be. Jesus also suggests in that same passage, we shouldn't apply the rule, an eye for an eye. But that rule, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it's just a simple principle of God's justice in the book of Leviticus. And so Jesus' point uh, is not that this principle of justice should be discarded, but that we as individuals should not seek to exact our own personal revenge. What then are we to do? Well, Romans 12 tells us, doesn't it? Romans 12, 9, we heard it earlier. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This actually is exactly what David does here. Notice verse 9 and even verse 15. Verse 9, David says, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. Verse 15, he says, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. Now, I know we tend to get really uncomfortable with these kinds of verses. How can the psalmist wish ill of his enemy? Doesn't he know he should love his enemy? I mean, that's what Jesus said, after all. Some people think, well, this is just, it's an Old Testament thing. 
right? Uh, they, they draw this sharp division between the old and the new. And the cries for justice in the Psalms, they're, well, they're consistent with Old Testament piety, we think, but not new. Can I be honest? I, I think that our Christianity is anemic. I think we have become infected by a culture of, of nice. I'm not so sure that God is nice. Don't get me wrong. I know that God is good and gracious and patient and forgiving, but, but not nice. Right? He, he may not fit as much as we like in polite culture. As C.S. Lewis said, right, he's not a tame lion. Do you think these cries for justice are an Old Testament thing? You read through the Psalms and you hear these and you're like, yeah, not anymore. That was good for David, but not for me. Look at Revelation 6, verse 10. In, in Revelation 6, verse 10, John sees a vision of Christians who were killed for their faith, Christians who had enemies. And we're told they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's the New Testament. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, I don't care, right, if you're a pacifist or serving in the military, whatever your views on, on violence in this life, you need to know this truth, that God will avenge his people. In fact, this is why you can love your neighbor without reservation. Again, Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That verse goes on in verses 20 and 21 to, to say, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, God will exact revenge on those who oppress his people. God will exact vengeance so we don't have to. By praying as he did, David is actually uh, leaving things in God's hands. He's asking God to judge. God, this is, this is up to you. How does that resonate, of course, with what Jesus said about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? This idea that God will bring vengeance so we don't have to. Well, on the one hand, I don't fully know. <laughs> but there are a couple things that seem to make sense. The first is we, we pray for our enemies, as Jesus said, knowing that one of two things is going to happen. Either they will reject the gospel and be punished for their sins, or they will accept the gospel, in which case Christ was punished for their sins. Either way, justice is satisfied. See, there's a kind of almost two, twofold goal here, right? Proverbs 24 actually exhorts us, the Old Testament, right? Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. See, we're not to delight in the downfall of our enemy even as we pursue legitimate justice. That's a hard line to walk. Really, it's the cross which makes this possible. We can pursue justice even as we do not delight in the downfall of those who receive it. Second, right, right, because we know that God will judge, 
We're free to show love and leave matters of justice in his hands. Justice will come one way or another. That's not for us as individuals to work out. We can be patient as God is patient, knowing that God will not be patient forever. Justice will be done. So our job is to love even our enemy as we await God's justice. And third, of course, again, we do have an enemy for whom we do not pray for mercy. That is the devil, right? We, we don't love this enemy. Our present battle, Scripture says, is not with flesh and blood. And so we pray for the overthrow of the evil one without reservation or mercy. We pray that he will be overthrown and that God's justice would reign. And, and so you see, right, on the one hand, calls for vengeance in the Psalms are not an excuse for settling personal scores, but neither are we to dismiss them as if Jesus' words about forgiveness wash away the call for justice. That's not the case. No, we long for justice, but the very prayer for justice is an act of leaving it in God's hands. God, bring justice here. This is important, especially for those who have been abused or the victims of violence or terrorism. Right? You need to know justice will be done. The just judge of all the earth will do right. God may give justice in this life, right, through civil authorities. Romans 13 says the state is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Of course, any justice in the present age is provisional and temporary and always imperfect. And so we await full and final justice to come on the last day. Vengeance belongs to God. Whether through the civil authority or on the last day, right, we trust him for judgment, even vengeance, which is the very thing that allows us in the here and now to love our neighbor. God's justice frees us from an agenda of revenge, even as the gospel empowers us for an agenda of grace. And so when wronged, we seek to be faithful and let God be God, knowing that he will put all things right, whether provisionally in the present, graciously in the gospel, or finally in the life to come. And so we, we face our enemies on our knees. So you, you get on your knees in the face of your enemies. Don't run, but don't play God. Get on your knees and pray. Uh, in the midst of his enemies, in the midst of the betrayal and the lies, the hurt and the pain, David trusts God. Uh, look at verses 15 through 19. Verse 15, let death steal over them. Let them go down to Sheol alive, for evil is in their dwelling place and in their heart. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, because they do not change and do not fear God. David is confident that the Lord will save him. He hears his voice. He redeems his soul. He will give ear, David says. Uh, verse 22 picks up on that. Verse 22, David exhorts maybe us, maybe even himself, as we sometimes have to do. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. In a sense, David is preaching the gospel to himself. He's reminding himself of the truths about God that he already knows. Because he needs to be reminded, right, that God is good and just and faithful even in my struggles. 
I need to remember that because I'm so tempted to forget it. Don't you need to be reminded, right? Trials come, difficulties happen, friends abandon you, loved ones betray you, and you need to remember, my God is at work in this. I don't understand it, I don't like it, but my God is at work, and he hears my cry, and he will save. And you can see maybe how, how both not running and not playing God are important in this, right? It's not, it's not fight or flight. Right? There is a stance of faith. Or maybe I should say there is a posture of faith on your knees. Right? That is, that the problems are bigger than us. But don't run as if there's no hope. And don't play God as if you could or should handle the situation yourself. Rather, cast your burden on the Lord and stand firm and see the salvation of your God. That, that was the call uh, to faith in Exodus 14, when Israel was caught between the armies of Pharaoh on the one side and the sea of death on the other. That's the call to faith in Ephesians chapter 6, as Paul describes spiritual warfare with our enemy, the devil. In both places, the call is to stand, to stand and see the salvation of our God. And so we face our enemies standing in confidence on our knees. I know that doesn't work, standing on your knees, but you get the point. But what about when the Red Sea doesn't part? What then? Where is God then? What about when the enemy seems to win? What about when the wicked thrive? Or the godless persecute? Or the rich oppress? Well, we look to the cross. Jesus was betrayed. Uh, one of the most well-known betrayals in history it was that of Judas betraying Jesus. He was one of the twelve, right? Part of Jesus' band of merry men. He ate with him and drank with him for three years until Judas plotted betrayal in his heart. And you may not remember, but Jesus even pronounced a woe on Judas. He said it would have been better for him if he had never been born. But really, Judas' betrayal was just symptomatic, wasn't it? I mean, no one recognized Jesus for who he really was. Few people bowed at his feet. Judas's actions were just the inevitable outcome of a world that had betrayed its creator. Judas' betrayal was only possible because the religious leaders were jealous of Jesus' popularity. And so they betrayed him into the hands of the Roman government. The Roman governor was afraid of Caesar. And so he, as one whose call was to administer justice, betrayed Jesus and condemned him to the cross. So on the cross, Jesus entrusts himself to the Lord. He, as, as the psalmist says, he, he casts his burden on the Lord. And he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But the Red Sea didn't part, at least not in that moment. Jesus went to the cross, and Jesus died, and Jesus was buried. And what do you do when the sea does not part? I think you remain on your knees. You remain on your knees until you can stand. That is, you keep praying and keep trusting and keep waiting on the timing of God. You see, the resurrection is the Father's answer to the betrayal. Jesus did die, and he did go into the grave, and then Jesus rose. 
Death did not, could not hold him. The sea finally did part, right? So we, so we stand on our knees in the hope of one day standing in the resurrection. Interestingly enough, the New Testament word for resurrection comes from a, a word which literally means to stand again. We live on our knees in the hope of standing again. Proverbs 24, 16 says, The righteous falls seven times and rises again. That is our hope, is it not? Not that, we will, not that all will go well in this life, because it won't, but that God will make things right in the resurrection. Just as he has already begun to make things right in the resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 37 puts it this way. It says, uh, it says fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. This is our hope that justice will be done. The meek who trust in Christ will inherit the earth. And having lived on our knees, we will stand on the day of judgment. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we long to stand before you, not, not in our own righteousness, but clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We stand before you not because we struggle and suffer. We stand before you because Jesus suffered in our place. We stand before you not because we are powerful, but because Jesus rose from the dead in resurrection power. And so we hope, we long to stand in that day. Father, I pray that in the meantime we would live on our knees, casting our burdens upon you and trusting you in the midst of all our struggles and trials to make things right. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.